In today's episode, we begin a brand new book, The Prophecy of Hosea, chapter 1. Hosea was a prophet in Israel during times of great prosperity, when the kingdom was divided. He was called to prophesy against the unfaithfulness of God's people, but so that he could empathize with the severity of this sin, Yahweh called him to experience this infidelity firsthand by taking on an adulterous wife. Good morning and blessed Lenten tide. Today is Monday, March 6th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word. Each weekday morning, we explore the Holy Scriptures through which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Thy Strong Word is brought to you in part by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. Check out lhfmissions.org to learn how they can help you, congregations, or missionaries spread the good news through Lutheran materials in foreign languages. They can also help out with a mission speaker if that's what you're looking for. Again, visit them to learn more at lhfmissions.org. Well, helping us to open up this brand new book, The Prophecy of Hosea, I'm pleased to welcome to the program the Reverend Timothy Sandino, pastor of Redeemer Lutheran Church in Gorham, Maine. Good morning, Pastor Sandino. Welcome to Thy Strong Word. Good morning, Pastor Boo. Glad to be with you. Well, I guess I should say welcome back to Thy Strong Word. Last time you were on was 2021, so it's been a little while, and this is certainly the first time you're on with me. So I was wondering, would you share a little bit with the people at home about yourself and maybe how God's been working through your ministry and the saints there at Redeemer? Well, sure. Um, so I've been a pastor. I'm in my 10th year here at Gorham, Maine, and uh, we have a preaching station as well. So I do services on Saturday night as well, about 45 minutes south. Uh, Redeemer is situated in southern Maine, and, um, and maybe that doesn't sound like a lot to everybody, but we we cover some 3,000 square miles, if you want to count it as a parish. Um, the nearest church to us is more than an hour away. And uh, so reaching out through preaching stations is, is certainly a, a, a vision that I have for Southern Maine. It, it allows us then to bring God's word and uh, his sacraments, the means of grace, to locations where there are other people that can't find their way to uh, Gorham on a regular basis because of the distance. Um, I live here with my wife. We have three children who are grown, and our oldest daughter actually lives in Minnesota, um, uh, on the other side of the southern part of the state from you, and uh, one daughter moving to South Carolina here in, in a few weeks, and our son that lives here in Maine with us. Um, other well, than that... I, I was going to say, I remember that when I was in the New England district, I was down in Connecticut, of course, but... You guys up in Maine were just, I mean, i mean, are you the only one up in Maine, or is there more than one? Well, there's actually two other congregations. One's an right. hour and a half north of me, and the pastor there also serves the Bangor congregation, which is another hour past him. Um, and I've done visits, um, home visits, uh, about five hours north of me, um, because there's just nothing up in that uh, neck of the woods. And it is woods, to be honest, yeah. <laughs> well, that's what I was going to say. It just seems so much like the frontier up there, and you guys were always um, just so far away from really the rest of us, which were kind of concentrated around Massachusetts and Connecticut. So, um, yeah, it's nice to see you guys are doing the Lord's work up there. It certainly needs to be done. Um, hopefully, um, the Lord continues to bless your work out there. I, I was hoping, before we begin, that you would start us off with prayer. 
Yeah, yeah. Let us pray. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we do give thanks to you for your word, the means by which you call us to repentance and faith in your Son, Jesus Christ. Through the prophet Hosea, you did extraordinary things, um, things that uh, we would think are unbelievable in many ways. But you made tremendous promises through that prophet, even as you called your people to repentance and you leveled judgment against them. We pray, O Lord, in this Lenten season, that our repentance too would be genuine, that we might be included in those that you call your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we are starting Hosea today. Hosea has been called the deathbed prophet of Israel, mostly because, well, he was the last prophet before the northern kingdom fell to Assyria. So we don't know a ton about everything that's going on, but we get such insight into the last days of this, well, relatively prosperous kingdom. And I think it should give us pause as we think about the prosperity of our own empire and whether or not, you know, judgment may soon well come. But brother, tell us a little bit about Hosea um, and, uh, you know, what, what we're getting ourselves into. Yeah, so, I mean, Hosea... I don't think we really know a lot about the person. Um, as we get into chapter one, we're going to find out the most that we uh, might glean from him. But as you say, he is the last prophet to the northern kingdom before its fall. Um, he is, his book appears at the beginning of uh, the 12 minor prophets in scripture, but he is not the first chronologically uh, of the minor prophets. Um, he is preceded presumably by Joel, though we don't know the exact time frame of Joel, um, and then also by Jonah and Amos. Um, his ministry spans nearly 60 years um, and uh, covers the, a good portion of the first part of the 8th century BC. So, um, so say about 800 onwards for about 60 years. Um, actually, it obviously the timing exactly is difficult, but he is present um, at the uh, fall of uh, the Northern Kingdom in 721. So if we back it up, that would take us to 781 if it was 60 years. Um, let me think, what else do we want to know about Hosea? As you say, he preaches in a, a time he's from the Northern Kingdom. And while he preaches primarily to and against the, the atrocities, the apostasies of the northern kingdom. Uh, his words also apply to the southern kingdom, to Judah, uh, who is also named in the book. Um, and uh, I don't know, beyond that, it kind of sets the stage, as you yeah. said, uh, of a time of prosperity. Um, many people will say that this is the most prosperous time in the northern kingdom. And, and presumably, I would say that is since Solomon. So after right. Solomon, obviously, the kingdoms split. We have a northern kingdom that included 10 tribes and the southern kingdom of two tribes. And, um, and during that entire time, all of the kings of the northern kingdom, we would say, were bad kings. Um, they apostatized and they did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And, uh, and we are going to see, uh, as you alluded to, uh, the demise of their view of God and their falling back into 
um, great apostasy and the worship of uh, other idols, um, which brings about the, the Hosea himself and God's judgment against his people. Well, let's get into some of the text, and that'll help us set the stage, as you said, continuing um, this theme of, well, the people are prosperous, the people are falling after idols, though, because the more comfortable you are with your own ability to provide for yourself, the less you rely upon God, and that's what's going on in Israel at this time. And so I'm going to read—actually, I'm just going to read the first three verses. That should give us enough to chew on for a few moments. So here we go. The word of Yahweh that came to Hosea, the son of Berai, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When Yahweh first spoke through Hosea, Yahweh said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking Yahweh. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. All right, I think that's enough for now because we have. Uh, so I think if anything uh, stands out from these verses, it would be the term whoredom. So uh, this seems to be something that has been debated over the years, whether or not. This is a literal activity of whoredom. Uh, that is, you know, he's taking a, a wife who is promiscuous in some way, or perhaps even a prostitute, or whether this is part of a vision, or whether this is symbolic. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on it, um, because I, I, there is one way I think we generally lean, but it has been struggled over in in the in the centuries since this was written. Yeah. Um, so let's approach it in this way. It is a very difficult thing, and in many ways, it's a, an unreasonable thing, we would say, for God to ask his prophet to do such a thing. So in our minds, then it becomes easy to talk about it simply as metaphor or um, uh, something other than an actual event. And, and that itself becomes problematic because then we undermine God's word and the reality that, that he did have. You know, that is Hosea had a son with his uh, wife here, Gomer. And, um, and so I would read it that this is actually what God did have Hosea do. Um, I mean, you used a word in your introduction that he might empathize, um, that is Hosea might empathize with God's people. Mm -hmm. um, I think that was a, a fantastic word. It's not one that I thought of in my preparations, because it is the same thing of which Jesus is referred to, that he became like us. And, and because of that, he can empathize with us. He understands our situation entirely and completely. And, and so this is, I'm trying to think of how the, to describe it, but a, a terrible thing for God to ask, but a, a phenomenal thing for God to ask, that his prophet would take a, a, a wife of whoredom, as the text here in the ESV says, um, many people do consider to be a prostitute, but certainly promiscuous, um, and, and then humiliate himself before all so that he might be able to empathize. And, and God has Hosea do it 
I, I call it kind of uh, uh, an ultimate object lesson. Hosea becomes the object lesson for all the people to see. This is how you are acting. This is how you are being. Um, because God describes his people as his bride. In many ways, he talks about their cheating against him in the Old Testament as they follow and make for themselves idols. Um, and certainly Jesus speaks this way, for he himself is the bridegroom and his church is the bride. And, uh, and by God acting what I'll call his alien nature, going against what he desires to do so that he might bring about um, repentance in his people, that he might impose upon them the full reality of their sin so that they would recognize that they are heading headlong into um, hell, um, into, unto God's judgment, so that he might correct them and, and bring, you know, it's almost like a slap up to the head. Boom, this is who you are and this is how you are acting. It is time to shape up. And, uh, and so asking Hosea to take Gomer um, as his wife here is a, a tremendous act uh, of mercy in many ways. Um, God demonstrating his mercy for his people even though he's acting in judgment. Yes, and I think that that is certainly the the main point of this text is the lesson that follows, that is God's calling out and identifying the rebellion and infidelity of the people, and of course his eventual call for them to repent and be restored. And I don't want to belabor the issue, but I do want to take a second. So, so your view is that um, this is probably more of a literal thing, right? So he calls... Uh, him to go and take a wife who is unfaithful, and whether that infidelity took place before they married, like he went and found someone who was unfaithful, or whether he took a wife who became unfaithful, you know, I'm not sure. Uh, the reason I bring it up is because, you know, even Luther leaned more towards the opposite way. He would have said that this was more metaphorical. Um, in Leviticus, you know, it said that priests should not marry prostitutes. There was this high expectation of purity, of course, for the marriage covenant. So a lot of people, I guess, like or want to try to get God off the hook, so to speak, to say, well, he wouldn't have called his prophet to do that. Uh, Luther, interestingly enough, takes on a different view. He says that he's not even satisfied by, say, Jerome, the church father, when he explains just what we're saying, that this is just what it sounds like. He took someone who was unfaithful to him so that he could feel that unfaithfulness. Funny enough, Luther says that um, she took on the moniker of being a wife of harlotry uh, in the same way that the children took on the monikers that we'll talk about later, which describe the judgment, but she actually she actually wasn't. It was all just to focus and point to the land, which is committing the great harlotry, um, as we as we see here in the text. I just think that's an interesting point. Like I said, I don't want to belabor it, uh, yeah. but a lot of people try to, I guess, get God off the hook for when he acts in ways that are contrary to what we expect. Uh, I yeah. lean towards it being very literal, but I just want to make sure that's kind of where you're going with it. Well, I would accept it as completely literal. Um, I don't see any reason to accept it as metaphorical. Um, 
if I can go against our uh, beloved. <laughs> but we do all the time on this show. Yeah. It's okay. Um, <laughs> so to cut, well, I mean, I don't think it's belaboring it, but let's let's kind of back up and just look at the name of Hosea, right? Yeah, let's do it. Um, it is a word that means salvation. Um, I will say a variation even of Joshua or Yeshua, which is the name of Jesus. And uh, while Jesus, uh, his name uh, literally means that Yahweh saves or Yahweh's salvation, Hosea here is a type of Savior, salvation for the people uh, of Israel. And, um, and so his humiliation here is a precursor of pointing forward to the humiliation of God's Son. His empathy here is, in a smaller way, the empathy that Jesus um, engages in and, and embraces on our behalf. So I think to diminish it and not call it literal is to undo it in many ways. Yeah, I can see that too. I can see that too, because what he's enduring, he's enduring as a, as a type of Christ who will suffer under the infidelity and injustices of, of, of course, our sin. Yeah, so I, I like that position. I think that's yeah. the best way to render it. Um, it's just God funny is kind of saying Hosea, it. Yeah, God's asking Hosea to bear a cross. Right, absolutely. For the, for the sake of his people. Well, why don't we read just a few more verses, because we're going to get the kids involved now. And so um, we ended verse 3 by saying, And she conceived and bore him a son. So now we'll read verses 4 and 5. And Yahweh said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. All right, so she's going to have a daughter here in a minute, but right now we're looking at the son, and he's to be named after the valley of Jezreel. What does that signify? Yeah, so... I'll call it just Jezreel, but uh, uh, Jezreel is the, a valley that runs more or less uh, east to west, maybe a little northwest, um, where we would picture the maybe a line between Samaria and Galilee today, uh, or in, in the day of Jesus. And uh, so it runs pretty much from the Jordan River, just north of Carmel, um, towards the Mediterranean Sea. And in that valley, there is a, a, a city named Jezreel or Jezreel. And, um, and it means that God sows, and here God is sowing judgment. Um, and, but it has a number of connections. It is the city where um, Ahab's uh, wife, uh, Jezebel, was killed. Um, well, let me, let me back up. Yehu's family. I'm... I'm I've, I had the Ahab in my mind because Ahab is a contemporary here of uh, Hosea. But uh, Yehu, who was the great-grandfather of Jeroboam, who was the king of Israel at this time, um, he um, overthrew, and uh, I have to, I get all the king's names mixed up in my head. Uh, yeah, me too, no worries. Yeah, and I don't have it in my notes. But Yehu was executing God's, God's judgment because of uh, the Baal worship in Israel. And, uh, and it was Ahab uh, who was the king that, that he overthrew 
and and maybe many of the listeners will recall uh, the um, vineyard of Naboth that Ahab uh, had deceived and, and eventually killed Naboth so that he might get his land. And, uh, and that was kind of the last straw. And, uh, and God used Yehu to uh, overthrow, and he established Yehu as the king of Israel. And, and Yehu did obliterate all of the Baals, the Baal worship. And uh, even though he did not, eliminate the golden calves, um, which was a type of syncretism. Um, and, uh, and so this is where Jeroboam comes in as the great grandson, the fourth generation following Yehu. And, and so that Jezreel is the location um, or the central, central location of Yehu's overthrow. But in doing so, Yehu also, and I think one of the, the easiest ways to that I would correlate it is like with Moses. Moses took credit when he struck the rock for providing water for the people, and he struck it twice rather than once as God commanded. So Moses had overstepped his bounds and took credit for something that God was doing. And as a result, Moses was prevented uh, from going into the promised land. Well, here Yehu, um, in his pridefulness, um, took credit for um, the overthrow of Ahab, rather than giving God the credit, he, and he kept things for himself. And while he got rid of the Baal worship, he did not get rid of the golden calves. And, um, and so God here now is reflecting back and, and using Jezreel as the, the locus of his punishment against the house of Yehu. So that his family's reign is now coming to an end. Um, and, uh, so we have him naming then his child after all, all of that, everything that's combined in that. And when we know that he says that soon this is all going to come to an end and imagine, and, and I know this is just sort of a practical thing, but we, we have him marrying a woman who is going to be unfaithful or who is unfaithful or who has been unfaithful. <laughs> the focus, of course, is the infidelity. And now he has a child by her, at the very least this first one, because this is um, a son to Hosea, and he has to name him in such a way that it recalls the end of the kingdom of the house of Israel. So, I mean, just in sort of modern language, you know, you're calling El Jezreel for dinner, but you're really just saying, you know, the end is near, come for dinner, you know, or or God's going to judge and punish us, you know, you need to wash up. It's it's a, I just couldn't imagine that every time you you engaged with your wife, you knew that marriage was based on infidelity, and every time you called your children, you knew that that they were symbols of God's judgment. Um what a what a burden across to bear, as you mentioned earlier, that Hosea must have had. Yeah, I guess so. I hadn't really thought about it too much. You know, sometimes we read and and these are just names on a page, but Hosea's entire life here is wrapped up in his ministry in that respect. That uh, everything that that is close to him speaks of God's judgment that that now is going to be levied uh, when the Assyrians come in. 
Um, well, you know, in another episode, I was talking with a different pastor, and we were just talking about how, well, you know, sometimes just like a, an athlete will hit the wall in pastoral ministry, I explained that there have been a couple times when, you know, I just, every everything around the ministry just overwhelms me to the point where I'm just like, you know, I, I just want to go get a job at Best Buy or something. Then I would just do my eight hours and go home, and then, you know, my whole life wouldn't revolve around my work. My whole life wouldn't revolve around um, um, the church and the proclamation. And while there are so many beautiful and amazing things about being a pastor or God's spokesperson, there's also this, there's that negativity of, of being the, having the ire of people because you speak the truth of God's law. And so this takes it to this extreme level because yeah, his whole life is revolving, not just around his prophetic ministry, which lasts for 60 years, as you said, but in many ways, at least this part of his life, is really all about judgment. It's like having to be a pastor, but it's only the bad stuff. I don't know. That's just, I guess, what came to my mind. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, as you mentioned, I mean, just think about at the end of the day going home and you can have a respite, you know, you can sit down and relax and, and, and just let your mind empty. That's not true for Hosea. <laughs> he goes home and he's constantly reminded of God's pending judgment. Yeah. Well, they're going to have a daughter, or rather I should say uh, Gomer conceives a daughter, whether or not that is Hosea's we might talk about when we get back, but we are going to have to take just a few minutes as a break. Folks, don't go anywhere. When we return, Pastor Sandino and I will keep on talking about Hosea chapter 1. See you on the other side. What's happening in Germany's Lutheran churches, where Iranian refugees are flooding through the doors? What new opportunities for sharing the Christian faith are arising in communist Vietnam, and how can my church play a part? Mission speakers, all LCMS pastors from the Lutheran Heritage Foundation, will come to your church free of charge to preach and lead Bible studies tying into this exciting work going on all around the world. To schedule your speaker, call LHF at 800-554-0723. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Wu, and with me this morning is the Reverend Timothy Sandino, pastor of Redeemer Lutheran Church in Gorham, Maine. Dear listeners, I pray that God's blessing you through our study of His Word. Remember, if you have any thoughts or questions or feedback, I love to hear it. Just send me an email at pastorboo at gmail.com, or you can find me on Facebook. Send me a message there. Also, I want to talk about how you can catch more episodes. You know, you can tune in on the radio and hear us live if you're in the St. Louis area. You can also listen live on KFUO.org. But what if you miss an episode? Well, you can listen on demand also at KFUO.org forward slash thy strong word. And we know you're busy. So KFUO has made it even easier to make sure you're never missing a program. You can download the app, the KFUO app. Or subscribe to Thy Strong Word on your favorite podcasting platform. There are so many ways to stay tuned. And, and I just want to let you know I'm grateful that you're a part of the Thy Strong Word family. And if you're enjoying what you're hearing, share the program with your friends and your family. 
Well, Pastor Sandino, before the break, we just got done talking about how, you know, there's this reality that he he lives, breathes, eats, sleeps around the judgment of God that must be very taxing on him, and yet he keeps doing his job. He keeps uh, enduring the suffering, as St. Paul might have said to Pastor uh, Timothy, but um, he's getting ready now to be responsible for a daughter. She's going to get her own unique name. Uh, but before we read those verses, anything else you want to cover of uh, what we've talked about so far? Um, no, I think we covered it. I mean, so the son with Jezreel, uh, his, the point of calling him is that God is going to bring about a judgment upon the northern kingdom. Well, then here we go with verses 6 and 7. She conceived again and bore a daughter, and Yahweh said to him, Call her name no mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by Yahweh their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. Okay, I think we can take a break there. A little bit more about no mercy in the next couple of verses, but just starting off here, Gomer conceives again, and I guess it's dubious on whether this is a product of her infidelity or whether this is Hosea's. I don't know if you have a per perspective on that, but then um, he gives her a name too. What's going on? Yeah, there? I mean, I don't think I have any great insight on it, but uh, I would simply read it as Hosea's daughter. Um, no reason to expect that uh, it is an illegitimate daughter from some other person. Um, it's obvious, though, that Gomer has been um, uh, unfaithful in some respect, uh, whether at this point, I don't know, but at least beforehand and, and later during the marriage. Sure, and I agree with that, too. I don't think there's anything super clear one way or the other. I guess what we hearken back to is in chapter uh, 1, which we're in, verse 2, he says, take your wife, take yourself a wife of whoredom, and then it says, have children of whoredom. So that children of whoredom suggests that there are children involved that basically are illegitimate that aren't his. So I don't think that it matters that um, uh, that no mercy is is one of those children. Uh, but, you know, it's always interesting to say, like, is, is that a reason why it says that she wasn't born to them, as it said with uh, Jezreel? I don't know. But yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I don't think there's any reason to read it other than the simple text. Yeah. Yeah. But then but the name no mercy is is interesting. Um, you know, we could say that without compassion or uh lacking forgiveness. I mean the the whole point of this is that God now is saying, "Hey, we're done. Um no more will I forgive your iniquity. No no longer will I overlook it for the time being. My patience has come to an end." And, uh, and that's a terrible thing. Um, you know, Paul talks about it in Romans 1 as well, that, uh, that God simply hands people over to their sin at some point, um, which, which is a, a horrible way of looking at it. Um, you know, I've, I've actually kind of heard of this described as the existence of hell when God turns his back on people. In other words, when God gives people what they want, and that is a world without God, a world where mercy does not exist, a world, world where God's love no longer provides. And, um, and, and so God here is kind of giving them what they want. They want their bales, 
They want their Asherah, um, and they will not let them go. And so God is going to let them have them. But those things will never save them. They will only be their demise. So we have Lo Ruhama here. Sorry, my Hebrew is not that great. Lo Ruhama is her name in Hebrew, but it says no mercy in the English or no pity or no compassion, as our guest says. Um, I will have no more mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. Yeah, I, I get that idea of turning people over to their sins. I totally understand that. This just, again, the simple reading seems so inconsistent with the nature of God, because isn't the point of proclamation of the law and judgment to elicit people to repent and receive the mercy of God? Um, you know, how do we reconcile that today? Well, we're going to get to that when we get to verses 10 and 11. Um, <laughs> okay, that's a good answer. Maybe we should you know, read on then. I mean, this, this single chapter is a... Is a um, a model of law and gospel. God's law is is severe, as much as it is it is real. But His mercy, even though He speaks here of no mercy, it does not mean that that's the end of His mercy. Um, and and the Old Testament is always a difficult thing for us because it involves like what we might say is real death, devastation to real people. And, and we think that God must be horrible. Um, you know, here, this is where there are actual events, but we should see them metaphorically in our own lives, that God afflicts us with what, whatever that affliction might be so that we must depend on him. And so these people, while we haven't gotten to the total exile or the, 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 the invasion of the Assyrians and the obliteration of the nation of Israel, but they are going to take this knowledge of God and, and in some cases, at least, faith in the one true God to the far hinterlands, you know, into the Assyrian nation. And, and in this belief in Yahweh, this trust and faith in Yahweh is going to spread on, an, on account of this. Well, sure, uh, you know, and and having you know your name represent the idea that God is going to no longer have mercy on you as a judgment, and to for Him to say that, um, well, we're going to talk about. Well, you know, what, let's wait for the not my people part until we get to not my people. Okay, uh, but but still, you know, there is something to be said about being exiled from the the people of God. Um, I guess just for. For in inclusiveness, why don't we continue to read? I'm going to read in now uh, verses 8 and 9. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And Yahweh said, Call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Now, you're right. The gospel, the other shoe drops, everything comes to clarity in verses 10 and 11, which is what we'll talk about next. But just dealing with it at, a, at a, you know, verse by verse, we have the Hebrew here, lo ami, which means, again, not my people. And so I think of, you know, Jeremiah and of just a ton of other places where the whole point is that God is made for himself a people. You are the people of God. And so for him to say, 
that you are not my people, or the judgment will be that you are not my people, that I will, won't have mercy, and that I'm not going to save Israel, but I will save Judah, even though it won't be by means of war, um, that, that's something that's probably worth unpacking for people. Yeah. Um, I'm going to back up, though, <laughs> to verse 7 Please. real quick, because we didn't talk about it, and I'll make it very quick. Um, for the readers, if they go to Second Kings eighteen and nineteen, um, it'll it'll give somewhat of the the uh, background here because he's talking about Judah. So when Assyria does come in and invades and and hauls off the northern ten tribes, um, they still Assyria still tries to invade into Judah as well. But here, as God predicted, He will defend Judah. He will re- rebuff Assyria. And it won't be because of the strength of men. It'll be by the by the uh, almighty power of God, and um, and so there's a promise that is given there in, in chapter seven. And so there it ties in here because Judah is being preserved. God is always saying that He is going to preserve for Himself a remnant, and uh, and there is always going to be a body of believers. What we would say is a church, whether it's just locally. Um, gathered, or whether it spans the globe, and they are joined by faith, um, God is still promising that that there will be a people. It's just this people has turned their back on God. They have been unfaithful to the covenant with God, and and this is where the marriage covenant comes in. It, it is that they have abandoned their first love. They have turned their back on their bridegroom. And, and they leave God only one recourse, and that is to give them their divorce, to, to turn them away and set them loose, because that is what they have desired. And, um, and, and it's a pretty, it's one thing I might say for a person to say, that's not my God. But what a horrendous thing to hear God tell, tell us that I am not your God. Um, that's that's a disowning, a disavowing, and uh, and that's what he's doing here with the northern kingdom. But isn't that also our message as uh, people who speak on behalf of God, right, according to his word only, when we have to tell the people who put their faith, hope, and trust in things other than the one true God that your God is not the true one, you know? It, it, again, I know there's this distinction between a person putting their faith, hope, and trust in somebody else and God rejecting his own people, but essentially God will reject those who are not a part of his people, although he calls all to be part of it. There is this reality that at some point on Judgment Day, you will stand before God and now know that he's the only one, and he's going to turn and say, you're not my people, you weren't my people in life, and you're not going to be my people in eternity. Yeah. So, I mean, so for us, as we preach, we, we bring about um, certainly the levity of the law, the, the seriousness of disobedience to God's word, so that all would repent. And, uh, and, and certainly idolatry being um, the pinnacle of all of these, right? They, that idolatry being maybe the end of all sin. Um, that is the, the, uh, uh, the, fu- the fullness of all sin. And... Uh, and this is what we see in Israel. So God was patient with Israel for the couple of hundred years since the divided kingdom um, with their worship of the golden calves. 
because that was a syncretistic. They, it's just like the golden calf that they built um, when Moses was up on the mountain. And uh, it, it was, they, that was their way of representing God, and, and even though God had forbidden it. But it's entirely another thing when they totally apostatize and they follow after different gods. They, they abandon the one true God, the God of Israel, and they seek after the gods of the Canaanites. And, um, and so, you know, while God was extremely patient with them all of that time, just like he is with us in our every sin, there does come a time when, God, when man rejects God that, that God himself will tell them, fine then, you are no longer my people, and I am not your God. Something no one should have to hear or has to hear or obviously wants to hear, right? Which is why we continue to proclaim the gospel. Yeah. And in this text, there is hope, there is gospel, right? So we, we're going to read the last couple verses of chapter 1 as we continue to talk about the first book of—or sorry, the first chapter of our new book, Hosea. This will be um, from the English Standard Version, of course. Here we go. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, it shall be said to them, Children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. So, the reason why I really wanted to focus without getting too far ahead is because Oftentimes when we know the story, so to speak, right, when we're listening to a, a sermon and we hear the law, you know, we sometimes salve our consciences by going, well, the gospel's coming. I know the gospel's coming. He's going to get—this is a Lutheran sermon, so it's going to be law and then gospel. So I can kind of not really uh, pay too much attention to the law. I, I'm not going to let it affect me. I'm not going to let it uh, make me feel guilty or sad because I know he's just going to sort of reverse it with a proclamation of the gospel. And so when we read Hosea here, especially this first chapter, you know, it's worth not heading too fast into this part because we have to let it sink in that God really means what he says, that there will be some who will not be of his people on whom he will have no mercy because that's the nature of judgment and the, and the consequences of unrepentance. But, brother, we were itching to get here because it is so important there is grace. There is mercy in God's proclamation. The whole point of this is for people to turn from their sins. Tell us about it from verses 10 and following. Um, so it, it kind of follows on what I was explaining a little bit. So when the people are taken into an exile, when, when they cease to be a people, a nation of Israel, and they are, are intermingled with the other population, they still take with them their understanding of Yahweh. And, um, and God's promise here um, is the same promise in many ways as it has always been, that, that they shall be numbered uh, like the, the sand of the sea. In other words, innumerable. Um, and uh, the same promise that he gave to Abraham and, and uh, his progeny. And, um, and here he also says in, in verse 10 that it will be said of them, that you who are not my people, 
they will be called the children or in my, my ESV here, it has a little note that says, or sons. And so the significance there is not just children of the living God, but heirs of his household. Right. And, um, and, and so even though they are hauled away, and even though they cease to exist as the people of God in a location, you know, a nation of Israel, from them are going to come innumerable believers people who will be called the children of God, um, and not just any God, but the living God, the God who, who is beyond borders, right? He's not a national God. He is the God of all people, the one who provides for every nation. And um, Yeah, I just want to hearken back to the language here. You, you mentioned it, and it's worth quoting. That's from Genesis chapter 22, verse 17. You know, God says, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, etc., etc. So, yeah, this is re- recalling, invoking the language of the covenant with Abraham. All of this points forward to, well, the harsh rejection that we saw in Hosea 9. It's pointing forward to a tempering by an appeal to the covenant because that covenant language is so important. And it's interesting that you point out that in verse uh, 10, it says children of the living God. Um, I think this is one of those renderings where they're trying to be a little bit more inclusive, but the reality is sons of the living God is more appropriate, not because of any um, any, uh, other reason besides there is a lot of loaded meaning in that phrase, sons of the living God. Yeah, yeah. And, I'm and glad certainly, you brought that up. yeah, certainly the term "living God" is is significant here too. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if that appears um, in many other places in the historical uh, record of the Old Testament. Um, you know that implying here um, or intimating here that that there is one God who lives. Uh, all others are simply carved um, idols. And, uh, I don't know where it all is, but I know in Joshua chapter 3, verse 10, he says, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out from, from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, Perizzites, etc., etc. So, yeah, there is this idea that this is a God who is active, who is living, who isn't, isn't the so-called idols or even the wealth and prosperity in which— the people of this time are putting all their faith, hope, and trust. This is a living God. And as a living God, not only does he have the power to act and to fulfill judgment, he also has the power to relent from disaster. But I would also add that he has the, as a living God, he also has the ability to be, um, how can I say, uh, to be offended, to be hurt by the idolatry and to be hurt by the infidelity. Uh, not in like the human sense, but in the sense that, you know, who are we to reject what God has given us? And yet when we do, that angers God, and rightly so. Right. Yeah. But I think here we, we do see the gospel very explicitly. Um, and uh, and all of the, the rest of the chapter has been building up to this, that God might show his mercy. Um, I, I think in the beginning, I... I talked about his judgment as being his alien nature, 
um, the idea is that God desires to be merciful. God wants to forgive. God wants to call us his people, his children, his sons. Um, and the only reason that he must afflict or punish um, is because of our rebellion against him so that he might draw us back to repentance. Yep. And then... Well, and well, I was going to say, then he says something really important because we're talking about this being the divided kingdom. We're talking about Judah and Israel. And then in 11, he says, the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head. Now, the the earthly kingdom that was divided into the north and south, that never did unite in terms of a political entity, at least the way we think about it, or did it? And, and if not, then well, what is this pointing to? Yeah. So the way, <laughs> the way I read it, I mean, it's not the modern day Israel. Um, yes, it, right. it is, it is truly a messianic prophecy. I would say the one head, um, you know, to them here in Hosea's day is going to be God. But the one head that we recognize uh, is the head of the church, as Paul would talk about with marriage metaphor in Ephesians 5, um, is Jesus Christ. And, yeah. um, and to him, all the nations will be drawn together. It will be in his humiliation. It will be at the foot of his cross that all nations will flow and, uh, and be united under this one headship. Um, this one king, this one Lord. And, um, and so that final, final uh, phrase there in, in 11, the final sentence, that they shall go up from the land. You know, this is biblical language, that, that they shall come from all nations to, you know, um, Golgotha, to, to, to the cross. And uh, for, the, for great will it be that day of Jezreel. And so here, again, the, the judgment of God begins for us to focus upon the cross. Um, I mean, even as this all points to what we might say is the last day, that great and awesome day when Christ does return, judgment day. But we recognize that as his people, our judgment has fallen upon Christ at the cross. And, uh, and the only judgment we will hear on that last day is the declaration of you are my people. Right. And and I I we haven't gotten there, so it's sort of weird to point out. And I don't know how much Hosea recognized this messianic language, but you're absolutely right. In Hosea three verse five, it actually talks about this this appointing them to one head. It says, "Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek Yahweh their God and David their king, and they shall come in to fear Yahweh." and uh, to his goodness in the latter days. So he's talking about this unification in the latter days, and they're turning back to God, Yahweh, the one true God, and who's their king? David. Well, obviously, Jesus is, is that fulfillment of the, the son of David who will reign over the throne forever. So, yeah, in mind here is absolutely what you said. And, and I don't want to get into the next chapter, but it, I, it, don't you think it's kind of important? Because then chapter 2, verse 1 says, Say to your brothers, you are my people, ami. Not lo ami, but you are my people. And to your sisters, 
you have received mercy. Not lo ruhama, but ruhama. So it's a complete reversal, just as you were talking about, brother. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, to help the readers out a little bit here, too, is uh, we have uh, the apostolic witness that helps us understand this. Both uh, St. Paul in Romans 9 and First Peter in uh, chapter 2 of his first epistle I'll refer to this uh, at verse 10 here of Hosea, talking about being God's people. You know, um, we're familiar with the first Peter, you are a chosen race, right? Um, a royal priesthood. And, and this, in both of them, he's talking about how God gathers, um, not just um, the blood relations of, uh, of Judah or Israel, but all who have faith in, in Jesus Christ. So he, he's gathering together a one people for himself, um, even though they come from all nations and all backgrounds. Amen to that. Well, in the last few minutes of the show, anything else you want the people to take home before we end? Well, I don't know. I think, I think Hosea becomes to us a, a horrible example of of mankind's apostasy and idolatry um, and the, the infidelity that we exhibit towards God when we sin. But it also draws for us the, the wonderful desire of God to show mercy, to, to gather his people, and, uh, and, and to, to give not a, a judgment of condemnation, but a judgment of righteousness. And, uh, and so because Christ has been faithful in our place, we then are clothed with these wedding garments, uh, garments of righteousness that make us beloved of God. Um, and, you know, we have all of that wonderful marriage imagery throughout the scriptures. Um, and, and this is the, I, I'll use the word nadir. This is the worst example. Um, but it becomes also for us the best example. Well, amen to that. Well, I'll tell you what, folks, it is time for us to bring it to a conclusion, but I'd like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend Timothy Sandino, pastor of Redeemer Lutheran Church in Gorham, Maine. Pastor, thanks so much for being back on the show. Pastor, thank you to you and your listeners. It's a pleasure. God bless folks, you. We keep on going through this fascinating prophecy tomorrow with chapter 2. Now, you've already heard a hint of what's to come, right? He says, you know, the people uh, are now, who weren't his people, are now his people. The people who have not received mercy will now receive mercy when they return to the Lord. And we'll hear more about that and Yahweh's mercy on Israel during tomorrow's program. Plus, we'll get a clearer understanding of why Hosea had to marry a wife of so-called whoredom in the first place. We'll, we'll dig in a little bit more about that husband and wife language as it applies to our relationship with God. So folks, until tomorrow, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong word.